a change of heart. I'm talking about the most serious and most uh, deeply changes. We've had change of hearts in trivial things. I, I remember when I was a kid, I did not like oatmeal. Maybe it's the way my mother prepared it, but now I eat it every day. Maybe I still don't like it all that much, but I like the way I prepare it. But that's a trivial thing, is it not? There have been things that we have uh, grown to change our minds and attitudes toward. But we're talking about the way of life taught by Jesus that touches and changes the heart of every disciple. The heart is the spring from which our actions flow. Jesus uses the expression now, if the fountain is pure, you're going to have pure water flowing from it. And Proverbs 4 and 23 says, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. And if we don't keep our heart in the way God wants us to keep it, the issues of life will not be pleasing to God. That's where the center <clears throat> of all of our activities begin. It's in the heart. And since all men sin, Romans 4.23, we all need to repent. We all need to have a change of heart to be pleasing to God. Some folks have accused the church of not having a change of heart. Maybe they have observed the way we worship, and it's not the way they worship, and they think, well, we've not undergone that change that they have. Talking about people whose assemblies are characterized by sort of a frenzied excitement. And they say, We've had a change of heart. And some of them will stand up and jump about it, and they'll be waving their hands, they'll be clapping, they'll be singing out loud. I mean, several things going on all at one time. Well, I think if Paul was speaking to that kind of situation in 1 Corinthians 14, when he's talking about now, if there are two or three who have the gift of tongues, take turns, don't all be talking at the same time. And there may be two or three who are able to prophesy, but if you're all talking at once, that's a lot of confusion. And that's when he says, this is in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33, for God is not the God of confusion, but of peace. That just brings confusion when everything's going all at one and nobody can concentrate on what's being done. And he closes that paragraph, the last verse, verse 40. But let all things be done decently and in order. So we are to have a change of heart. We do not have to express it by clapping our hands and jumping about. But our hearts need to be involved. Well, what is the Bible meaning of heart? The word heart, do you know how many times that's used in the Bible? Well, I won't ask you for an answer, but if I were to ask Jonathan, no, not Jonathan, Mark. <laughs> Mark speaks in the millions and billions, but that's a little overstatement. How many times do you think the word heart is used in all the Bible? Well, the answer is over 900 times. Do you see the importance of the heart? And yet it's hardly ever used in a, a literal or a physical sense. Let me give you two examples, one of that kind. When we turn to 2 Samuel 18 and 14, this is telling us about, well, let's back up a little bit. Absalom, the son of David, 
very ambitious, wanted to be the king before his father died, and so he had this coup d'etat. Drove his father out of the palace in Jerusalem. But finally they got engaged in this battle. And here was Absalom leading his forces. He's riding on a horse. The horse goes under a tree and his hair, he is proud of his long hair. He got caught in the tree and the horse kept going. But Joab was told about Absalom's situation, so he takes three darts, throws them right into the heart of Absalom, and he's killed. That's talking about the physical heart. We turn over to Acts 2, 36 and 37, and we read about another kind of heart. Peter said, Let all the household of Israel know assuredly that God hath made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who ye crucified. And when they heard this, one version says they were cut to the heart. Another says they were pricked in their hearts. They were pierced to the heart. They were smitten in their conscience. We'll talk about the conscience being a part of the heart. They realized then what they had done was wrong, and that bothered their heart. And so they cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter told them, and about 3,000 of them responded. About 3,000 had that change of heart that led them to obey the gospel. So we're not talking about the blood pump heart. We're talking about a spiritual type of heart that needs to be changed to please God. The Bible definition of a heart <clears throat> and its functions, we'll, no we'll notice four different factors. Four. One is that that part of man called the intellect is called by God the heart. Give you some examples. We think, that's a part of the intellect, isn't it? In Matthew 9 and 4, Jesus says to this paralytic, his four friends had brought him there, he says, Son, be of good heart. Thy sins are forgiven. And there were some scribes thinking, they didn't say this audibly, but they were thinking, not out loud, but <laughs> to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Nobody can forgive sins but God. Well, Jesus knew what they were thinking. And he says, why think ye evil in your heart? They thought with their heart, that's the point I'm trying to make. We turn over to Mark 2 and 8, we have the same instance. And there the wording is, why reason ye these things in your heart? When we think, when we reason, we're using the heart as the Bible defines it. <clears throat> in Matthew 13, we have a number of parables, one right after another. And the disciples asked him the question, why are you teaching these people so much in parables? Well, he quotes from Isaiah the prophet. And I'll read you some of the statements that Isaiah wrote and Jesus is saying is fulfilled here. By hearing ye shall hear and shall in no wise understand. And seeing ye shall see and shall in no wise perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross. And their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest haply they should perceive with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts. We have a, an understanding of anything that's done, the Bible says, to the heart. Jesus is telling the disciples that the reason he's telling all these people these parables is to both conceal and to reveal. 
His audience is composed of people with different kinds of hearts. Those people who were really looking for some moral would see it. It would reveal to them not just a pretty story, but something that it intended to teach. Whereas the other people hear it and they'll just walk off thinking, well, that's a good story he told us today. But they don't see anything about it. They're not understanding, and of course with their heart, what Jesus wants them to understand. One other part of the heart that refers to the intellect is belief. Romans 10 and 10. With the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. We believe with the heart. So what man ascribes to the intellect, the Bible ascribes to the heart. Another function of the heart, that part that man calls emotions, to love, to hate, and so forth, the emotions, the Bible calls the heart. Let me give you some Bible examples. We turn over to 2 Samuel 6.16. David has finally, as king, been able to bring the ark to Jerusalem. It had been uh, taken back during Samuel's time years and years before. <clears throat> it stayed in the home of Abinadab for about 70 years. Then David had this house built in Jerusalem just for the ark. So they go to get it. But they do not follow the instructions of God. And as he wants to protect the ark, touches it and he falls dead. God caused them to die. Well, they put the, the ark in the home of Obed-Edom. And after about three months, they get word, well, God's blessing this home. It must be a good sign that you can remove the ark to Jerusalem now. So they do. And so while they're bringing it to Jerusalem, Get it there, Micah, this is uh, David's uh, first wife, Saul's daughter, is looking out the window and she despises him in her heart. Now why? David was doing a good thing, but he was so, what's the word? <laughs> so happy, so joyous, he was dancing about. She did not like him to dance about in front of the young women. Let me just read a couple of verses. This is in 2 Samuel 6, and I'll read verse 16. And it was so that the ark of Jehovah came into the city of David, that Micah, the daughter of Saul, looked out at the window and saw King David, that's her husband, leaping and dancing before Jehovah, and she despised him in her heart. Now the point I'm trying to make is, you despise with a heart. But just to carry on with uh, Micah here, when David finally came home after all the big celebration, Micah greeted him and noticed the sarcasm in her voice. And Micah, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today! And she doesn't mean that, because she goes on to say the rest of the sentence, Who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants as one of the vain fellows shamefully uncovered himself. David, you were disgraceful. Now I don't like it. She despised him in her heart. And that's what we do with the heart when we despise. It comes through the heart. So we're talking about emotions, despising, desiring. Paul said, brethren, my heart's desire and supplication unto God is for them that they may be saved. 
He's talking about his Jewish brethren who had rejected Jesus. His heart's desire, his prayer to God is that they might be saved. So we desire through the heart. We love through the heart. What's the first great commandment? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with what? That's right. With all thy heart. And also, we trust with our Proverbs 3 and 5. Trust Jehovah with all thy heart and lean not upon thine own understanding. So, we're talking about emotions that includes despising, desiring, loving, trusting. Man's heart embraces all of these feelings. And what God calls the heart, man calls emotions. But we're not through with the heart. That part of man that man calls his will, his volition, he's determined to do something. The Bible calls that his heart. I'm going to turn over to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 37. The brethren in Corinth had uh, some questions about marriage. And so they wrote Paul this question, this question. So in chapter 7, he's answering those questions. One of the questions has to do with the father who has a daughter. She's, she's old enough to get married. She's engaged or has been asked for marriage. And the fathers did all the arranging for the marriage of their children. And I think he's talking about here the father about the daughter rather than the man who wants to marry the daughter. Verses 37 and 38. But he that standeth steadfast in his heart, and there's another function of the heart, to stand steadfast, that's determination, having no necessity, but hath power as touching his own will, we're talking about willpower, and hath determined this in his own heart. You determine to do something, you determine not to do something by or through or with the heart. To keep his own virgin daughter that do well. So then, both he that giveth his own virgin daughter in marriage doeth well, and he that giveth her not in marriage shall do better. Paul's talking about the distress that was upon them at that particular time, and he says, right now it'd be better she put off marriage. But let the Father determine this in his heart. So what do we do with the heart? We determine. We intend. Hebrews 4 and 12. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And then he illustrates that by saying that the word of God is so sharp that it can separate the spirit from the soul. We talked a little bit in class about that. It can separate the moral from the joints, and it is quick to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. The heart intends, the word of God can, can tell us whether we're intending the right thing or not. Generally, around the new year, people make New Year's resolutions. A lot of people don't, but some do. And so they resolve in their heart that they're going to stop doing something they know shouldn't be doing. They're going to start doing something they know they should be doing. Well, actually, for a Christian, he doesn't and should not wait until the new year to do something like that. I mean, if I know right now something I should not be doing, I mean to stop right now. I can't wait till January the 1st. And vice versa. If there's something I should not be doing, 
I need to stop it, start doing what I should do. That is a part of the heart's function, to purpose. And also, one other thing that calls for the will of man, and that is obedience. Romans 6 and 17, But thanks be unto God that whereas you were servants of sin, ye have become obedient from the heart under that form of teaching whereunto you were delivered. And being then made free from sin, he became a servant of righteousness. That's verses 17 and 18. So what does one do with this heart? That has to do with the volition, with his will. He determines, he intends, he purposes, and he obeys. But there's another part of the man. We would refer to it as his conscience. The Bible calls it his heart. First John Chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Let me read the two verses. Because if our heart condemn us, that's what our conscience does, isn't it? So he's referring to the conscience as the heart here. Because if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, our conscience approves, then we have boldness toward God. So what we're saying here is that the heart or our conscience condemns or approves. So the heart of man includes his intellect, his emotions, his will, and his conscience. There is no change of heart until each of these four elements have been changed. Let me give you a list of things. The heart must be changed to please God from evil thoughts to good thoughts. And the heart must be changed from wicked reasoning to good reasoning. It must be changed from ignorance of God's will to a knowledge of God's will. The heart must be changed from unbelief to belief. We'll talk about how that takes place in a minute. It must be changed from despising what the world despises to admiring what God admires. The heart must be changed from desiring what the world desires to what God desires for us. And the heart must be changed from loving the world and the things of the world to the love of Jesus. It must be changed from trusting in material things to trusting in God. And it must be changed from unrighteous determinations to righteous determinations. It must be changed from unscriptural intentions to scriptural intentions, from unholy purposes to holy purposes, from disobedience to obedience unto God from a condemning conscience to an approving conscience. This is the change of heart that is essential to man's salvation. Now, we want to look at this question. How is the heart changed? We talked about the four parts of the heart, the intellect, the emotions, the will, the conscience. How is the heart changed? Well, the intellect part of the heart 
is changed by evidence of testimony. Take Thomas, one of the apostles. We call him the doubting Thomas, don't we? Why was that? Well, when Jesus appeared on the day of his resurrection, Thomas wasn't there. Where Thomas was, we're not told. Maybe he had company come in, he had to stay home and fix dinner. I don't know where Thomas was, but he was not there. Later, when the other apostles saw him, the Lord's alive, they said. We saw him. He stood with us. Thomas said, I don't believe it. He said, unless I can see the prints in his hands and see the, the wound in his side, I will not believe. That's the way Thomas, that's why we call him Doubting Thomas. Well, the next first day of the week, they were all together, Thomas was here. And the Lord appeared in the room, the doors were locked, and he said, Peace be unto you. And then looking right at Thomas, he said, Thomas, reach hither thy fingers, put thy hand in the prints of the nail, and put thy hand in my side, in the wound. And then be not faithless, but believing. And that's when Thomas said, my Lord and my God. He had the evidence. He believed that he was alive. He saw him. He had all the evidence. So Thomas's thoughts, his reasoning, his understanding, his faith were not changed until he saw Jesus. Until Jesus appeared and gave him the evidence he needed. Faith is based upon evidence. Some people talk about, well, that's blind faith. You, know, you just go so far and then you just take a leap out into the darkness. That's not faith. That's not biblical faith. It's nonsense. Faith is based upon evidence. What about Romans 11 and 1? Where it's defined now, faith is the substance there's a foundation, there's something there. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So our faith, if we have faith, it's based upon evidence. And the word of God is the testimony to change man's intellect. How does faith come? Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So the intellect is changed by evidence. What about the emotions? Well, they're changed by faith. Faith is changed by evidence. Emotions are changed by faith in the testimony that's presented. For example, 1 John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us. We love God. We found out now how he loves us. We respond to his love for example, when we believe the story of Calvary. Romans 5 and 8, God commendeth his love unto us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There is a manifestation of his love. We will despise what God despises. We will desire what he desires. For us, we will love him, we will love one another, we will even love our enemies. Trust him to do what he has promised to do. That involves our emotions based upon faith. The will of man is changed by the motives produced by the faith. Think about, well, I, Paul, 
he's called Saul when he's persecuting the church, but so we won't be confused to two people, we're calling him Paul. Paul was determined, he was intended, and he purposed not to, do, not to obey Jesus Christ. Why? Well, he thought he was an imposter. Paul said in Acts 26 and 9, I thought within myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Didn't believe Jesus who he claimed to be, so he persecuted the church. He was determined not to obey the Lord, but then we see this persecutor with a determined will traveling on the road to Damascus. Why? to keep on persecuting Christians who had fled from Judea into Damascus. And then suddenly the Lord appears to him, and that changes everything in Paul's life. He saw then the evidence that Jesus was alive, that he was the Lord, and that changed his heart from unbelief to belief. And when Paul was told to arise and be baptized to wash away thy sins, he unhesitatingly obeyed. What were some of the motives that changed Paul's will? Let me give you a few. Belief in the goodness of God. That changed Paul. In fact, he wrote about it later in Romans 2 and 4. Or despiseth thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? When we believe in God and we see his goodness, that's going to cause us and lead us to repentance. Another motive is belief in the rewards that God has for the obedient. Hebrews 5 and 9, let's start with verse 8. Though he were a son, let yet learn the obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them who obey him. So when Paul realized there was a reward or rewards, Blessings for the obedient, that caused him to change. That was a motive. And belief also in the punishment of the disobedient. Revelation 20 and verse 15, For if any was not written in the book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire. Certainly that has some degree of motivation in everybody. Who wants to go to hell? Who wants to be cast into the, the lake of fire and brimstone and suffer eternally? Well, God sent Jesus to die that we wouldn't have to do that. That's a good, or a part of the goodness of God that he saw. One becomes free from his sin when he obeys from the heart. We've quoted that before. No man is a servant of Jesus until he obeys from the heart. And no heart is right until it is an obedient heart. One other part of man's heart, the conscience. This is changed by faith in having done what's right. If a man understands and believes what Jesus has commanded, he can never have an approving conscience until he does it. For example, baptism is a command. Acts 10, 24, Peter commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. If one understands and believes that baptism is a command to be obeyed, how can he have a clear conscience until he has been baptized? 
First Peter 3.21 tells us the like figure wearing to baptism doth also now save us or you. Not through the washing away of the filth of the flesh, but through a, the answer of a good conscience toward God. It is faith in having done right, having obeyed the commands of God, that changes a conscience from a condemning conscience to an approving conscience. The conscience does not hurt until one believes he has done wrong. And this is why multitudes in our society do not have a disapproving conscience in regard to this. They don't believe that they're lost. They haven't been taught they're lost. They haven't been taught what they have to do to be saved. We'd like for the world to know it, but we're not getting the job done, are we? This is why multitudes are in disobedience to God with an approving conscience. They just do not know or believe that they're living in disobedience, just like Saul, Paul, we'll call him. In Acts 23 and 1, he said, Brethren, I've lived before God in all good conscience until this day. And that included the time when he was persecuting the church. He had a good conscience. He had not been taught right, or he had not received the teaching. And man's intellect, his emotions, his will, and his conscience are changed, then man's whole heart is changed. One last question, just take me a minute to answer it, maybe three. Can a man whose heart has been changed have another heart change? Can a person have another change of heart? He's become a Christian now. Well, Demas did. 2 Timothy 4 and 10, Paul said, Demas forsook me, having loved this present world, and he went to Thessalonica. Two things, he forsook me. He loved this present world, that condemned him. But he was a worker with, 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 with Paul and other of his his workers. Luke 9, 62, no man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. We become a disciple of the Lord and then we turn around and look back into the world. There's a change taking place that's not good in God's sight and is not approved by him. We looked at Matthew 22, 37, we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart. What about John 14 and 15? Jesus